of the beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, our weekly get-together to talk about the world of sports. And there's a lot going on tonight. The Major League Baseball playoffs are going on, and the Cubbies keep on winning. Thursday Night Football is also on tap for this evening. On a sad note, Lamar Odom is still hospitalized, but Ronda Rousey now is taken. All that coming up on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show with Dave Mitchell, here tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com. But first... Boy, the Major League Baseball playoffs have been nothing but exciting over the first week. The Cubs managed to defeat the Cardinals there in the National League Championship Series. Kansas City and Toronto just continue to keep on winning after they had dropped the first game of their series. But tonight, we've got Game 5 of the National League Divisional Series between the New York Mets and the Los Angeles Dodgers in Chavez Ravine. And Matt Snyder takes a look at tonight's Game 5 with a pair of aces dueling it out. Hey, we've already seen two Game 5s. Now it's time for a third. We're going to get Game 5 between the Dodgers and the Mets in Dodger Stadium. This series has been great. It's tied two games to two. We had all the drama surrounding the Chase Utley situation. We saw the Mets blow out the Dodgers in Game 3 with that the cherry on top was that incredible Yohannes Cespedes bomb into the upper deck. And then the Dodgers came out and got an incredible effort from Clayton Kershaw in Game 4 to force a Game 5. Now they've got their other ace waiting in the wing, Zach Greinke. 1.66 ERA during the season. He might win the Cy Young. Unbelievable year all around for him. And he's going up against Jacob deGrom, who has been incredible himself against the Mets this year. Last time out, he went seven innings. Didn't give up a run, struck out 13. During the regular season when he faced them, he went seven and two-thirds scoreless innings. So he has owned the Dodgers this season. Both pitchers, I expect, will be pitching real well throughout the game, probably at least seven innings for both. I think it's going to be low scoring. We might see this thing turn on a solo home run, of all things, and that it'll be up to the late innings. Uh, maybe a short reliever gives something up. Uh, some, looking for something like that. Maybe it's a case where we see a one runner get on, then there's a pinch runner and a stolen base, then a single. Maybe something like that in the late innings to provide some drama. One item of note on Zach Granke. Opposing offenses hit better against him their first time through than their second or third. Now, obviously, they're still bad against him the first time through because he's been pretty great throughout the season and throughout each game. But the numbers are better the first time through, and last time the Mets saw him, they hit two homers in the second inning, first time through the order against them. So maybe the key for the Mets is to jump on Greinke early. Well, if the Dodgers lose this game, look for that organization to fire Don Mattingly. Now, let's move over to the American League where... That crazy Toronto Blue Jays victory yesterday over the Texas Rangers to win that series three games to two. Texas won the first two games, Toronto then the next three, but that seventh inning yesterday was just amazing baseball. Matt Snyder discusses that series. I think I need some time to catch my breath here. What an unbelievable game five between the Blue Jays and Rangers. It was uh, actually relatively uneventful. Through uh, five and a half innings, you know, we, we had the, the Rangers get a first inning run, then they got a Shinsu Chu homer. The Blue Jays got one back, but it was just 2-1 going into the bottom of the sixth. Cole Hamels was throwing the ball well. 
Edwin Encarnacion, big time bomb, ties the game. And then the seventh is when everything just went absolutely bonkers. We have the the Odor scoring uh, on the Russell Martin throw that hit off Shinsu Chu. It looked like his hand or the bat around his hand. Uh, initially, Dale Scott throws up his hands, which seems to be like he's calling time. Uh, the umpires rule that the run should be allowed to count correctly because the ball should have been live. He never should have called time. If he was trying to call time, that was a mistake. Uh, then the Blue Jays fans are peppering the field with beer cans, which, by the way, if he did that, shame on you. But uh, let's not lump in all Blue Jays fans because it was still a minority of the crowd doing it. Uh, then we get to the bottom half of the inning, and we see three defensive miscues by the Rangers open the door for the Blue Jays to tie it, and then Jose Bautista to hit a three-run bomb. After that, it looked like Edwin Encarnacion was trying to get the crowd to stop throwing stuff. Rangers pitcher Sam Dyson got mad about it somehow. Then the bench is clear. Cooler heads prevail. Then at the end of the inning, Dyson went up to Tulowitzki and said something. It looks like he tapped him on the butt as if he was trying to say, like, hey, we're all good, and Tulowitzki didn't like that. Then the bench is clear again. Uh, my main man, Adrian Beltre, right in the middle of the whole way, though, trying to get everybody to settle down. In the end, when the dust settled, 20-year-old Roberto Osuna, who hadn't even pitched above Class A before this year, comes out and nails down the victory for the Blue Jays. They're headed to the ALCS for the first time since 1993. And then later Wednesday night, the Kansas City Royals completed their comeback. Remember, they were down 6-2 to two on Tuesday against Houston when Houston had the opportunity to finish them off. Well, when that didn't happen, you had a feeling that Kansas City was going to end up winning that series. And they did. They won that game Wednesday night to move into the American League Championship Series against Toronto, thanks to a huge effort from Johnny Cueto. The Royals are advancing again. Johnny Cueto, go out for the Royals and get it done in Game 5. That's exactly why they traded for him in July. He had had a lot of bad outings leading up to the playoffs, and uh, even his good outings weren't Johnny Cueto good, the things that we'd gotten used to the past few years, the all-star Johnny Cueto, the Cyan contender Johnny Cueto. That's who showed up in Game 5. He went out and was absolutely dominant for eight innings. He gave up a two-run home run to Luis Valbuena, and that was it. Uh, other than that, he was completely locked in, just absolutely dealt, kept the Astros off the scoreboard, and other than that home run, of course, and handed the ball to Wade Davis going into the ninth inning. Now, the, the Royals got some nice insurance on the Kendris Morales three-run home run going into the bottom of the ninth, or going into the top of the ninth, and uh, that from there, that was pretty much it. That was the nail in the coffin. Earlier in the game, it's kind of funny that Alex Rios was the one who came through with a two-run double to put the Royals on top because he had not had a good season for them at all. He's much maligned, and rightfully so, but he came through with a big hit. Cueto finished the job there, and Kendrick Morales checked on the insurance, and the Royals are headed back to the ALCS for the second straight year after having not gone since 1985. And they will be taking on, as I said, the Toronto Blue Jays. That series will begin on Saturday. While the Chicago Cubs advance to the National League Championship Series against tonight's Mets-Dodgers winner, but can they go any further? Well, Adam Shine discusses that the Cubs are good enough to win the World Series. The Chicago Cubs are moving on. We've witnessed the Cubs take down the mighty St. Louis Cardinals in Game 4 to win the LDS three games to one, advancing to the National League Championship Series for the first time since 2003. This was, amazingly, only the fourth postseason series victory for the Cubs in history. They won the 1907 World Series. They won the 1908 World Series. In 2003, they beat the Braves in the NLDS to advance. And now they've beaten the Cardinals in the NLDS to advance. And we say series because the wild card round is just one game. It's not a series. 
So four series wins for the Cubs in history in the playoffs. We'll see if they can make it five or even six, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. How they do it against the Cardinals in Game 4? They did it the way they've been doing it all season, at least the past two months. They did it with the long ball. They got down early 2-0, but then they got one back on a Jason Hamill, of all people, single. And then Javier Baez went opposite field for a three-run home run to give them a 4-2 lead. The Cardinals, as they do, battled back, tied the game. But Jorge Soler threw out the go-ahead runner at home. And then the next inning, Anthony Rizzo went yard to give them a 5-4 lead. Seventh inning, Kyle Schwarber, bomb on top of the scoreboard in, le- in right field. An unbelievable bomb. We should call it the video board, not the scoreboard. That gave the Cubs a 6-4 lead. And then Pedro Strope and Hector Rondon were able to nail it down without much drama. Great job by the back end of the Cubs' bullpen. Great job by their offense to stay relentless and tack on runs. And the Cubs are moving on to the NLCS. Again, first time since 2003. Fourth time in franchise history they've won a postseason series. Well, shortstop Addison Russell will not be on the championship series roster for the Cubs because of the hamstring injury that he suffered in Game 3 against the Cards. Joe Madden announced today that Russell hasn't been ruled out for the World Series should the Cubs advance that far. Russell will be replaced by Javier Baez, who took over at short in Game 3 and started there in Game 4 of the Divisional Series, and he'll start at shortstop in the National League Championship Series. Well, one of my favorite all-time college football coaches is resigning. Not retiring. He's resigning. Steve Spurrier, the head ball coach who helped transform the way college football is played with his pass-happy, fun-and-gun offense, announced his resignation as coach of the South Carolina Gamecocks Tuesday. The 70-year-old Spurrier told his players Monday night that he was stepping down effective immediately. Sean Elliott was named the interim coach after meeting with several Gamecocks assistants and players on Monday night. Spurrier wouldn't endorse anyone for the interim job, staying loyal to each coach. He did win the 1966 Heisman Trophy as Florida's quarterback and played for San Francisco and Tampa Bay in the NFL. Spurrier spoke to the media Tuesday after it was leaked out he was stepping down on Monday. First of all, I'm resigning. I'm not retiring. I'll get that part straight. I, uh, I doubt if I'll ever uh, be a head coach again, but, you know, maybe coaching a high school team or something. Uh, so don't say I've retired completely from coaching. Who knows what will come in the future. But uh, the last several years, as I've traveled around the country seeing guys and so forth, I always get asked, how much longer are you going to coach? And my answer is always the same. As long as we keep winning, keep winning these bowl games, uh, everybody's happy, we're ranked, life's pretty good, I, I guess I can go several more years. But if it starts going south, starts going bad, then I need to get out. You just you can't keep a head coach that's done it as long as I have when it's heading in the wrong direction. Uh, but actually, when we were 2-2, two and two, I called Coach Tanner Sunday afternoon, and I said, Coach, I'm going to try to get through this season, uh, but, but I sense that this is about it for me. I just sense it's it. Uh, Central Florida it was a struggle against those guys. As you know, we came in at halftime behind, and uh, it, it was a struggle. And uh, man, I said, you know, I, I don't know if I need to continue having these kind of struggles. But uh, uh, we talked briefly then, and then we talked briefly uh, this past Sunday. And, uh, and 
When something is inevitable, I believe you do it right then. You don't wait a week. You don't wait two weeks. This has to happen. Let's do it. Let's do it, and let's get started in a new direction. So that's, that's what we hope to do today. And let's give the interim coach the opportunity right now. Got a home game against Vandy that uh, I think we, if we play well, we've got a good chance. And uh, let's give the interim coach this opportunity right now today. And really today, when I move out of the way and Sean Elliott's going to take over as the interim head coach, it sort of starts our rebuilding or building back uh, what we had just two years ago. And it was only two years ago that we were fourth in the nation and uh, the last of those 11 and twos. And somehow or another, uh, we've slid, and it's my fault. I'm responsible. I'm the head coach. And it's time for me to sort of get out of the way and let somebody else have a go at it. And I really believe Sean will bring uh, some enthusiasm, energy, passion uh, that our team will accept. And uh, I think we'll all be proud of the way our guys play out there uh, Saturday. I'm looking forward to watching it myself. Uh, the part about what right now, yeah, the President said, why can't you just go through the end of the year and announce uh, this is your last year? Uh, I, I find that that doesn't work a lot because if the players know you're not going to be their coach after such and such a time, it, you just don't have the accountability, I think. And also, it, it gives us a chance to hire an interim head coach. Gives us a chance, Coach Tanner hired Sean and uh, Gives him a chance to make his mark uh, for these next six games. And I think the team needs to hear a new message, a new voice from another coach. And Sean's going to do that, and I think he's going to do an outstanding job. And hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll work out. Hopefully a lot of our coaches on the staff here will, will still be here next year. And, and, of course, I'm pulling for Sean. But it gives us a little time to start rebuilding. Uh, Yesterday, I was sort of a recruiting liability. Uh, it's hard to recruit when your coach has done it a long time and at a certain age. The recruits want to know that guy's going to be there five, ten years from now. And uh, with a new coach here, I think it really is going to pick up recruiting. I really believe that. So we've got a new message going, and uh, I think our rebuilding process is in place. Uh, just looking back here, I thank Dr. Sorensen and Mike McGee. Mike McGee basically hired me with uh, Dr. Sorensen's approval uh, back in 04. I think I was probably the best coach for this job 11 years ago, but I'm not today. I'm not today. And that's the cycle of coaching. Uh, sometimes you run your course, you've had your run, and it's ready to pass it uh, to the next guy. And that's, that's where I am right here today. But I, I do believe it's important for me to step aside and allow that building back process to take over. So that's what I'm doing today. I'm stepping aside, and uh, I'm still going to be around town. I'll come by practice. I'm down in the weight room working out. Uh, I'll just be the former head ball coach now, former head ball coach. Uh, but I'll be around town a lot, and uh, I just think it's the best thing. This is the best thing for South Carolina football, for our university, to start another uh, building process. And uh, we've got an excellent interim coach, excellent coaches, and uh, – it's, it's their turn to, to have a go at it. Spurrier, whose 208 career wins are second only to Bear Bryant, who had 292 among SEC coaches, is the all-time leader in wins at both Florida and South Carolina. 122 wins at Florida and 89 with the Gamecocks. 
He also coached at Duke and one season with the Washington Redskins in the NFL. South Carolina is forming an advisory council and would use an outside search firm to assist in finding a new head coach. Southern California Athletic Director Pat Hayden is defending both his hiring and firing of Steve Sarkeesian on Tuesday, saying the troubled football coach passed a thorough background check and had no behavioral missteps until the last two months. Right. Hayden said he sent a letter of termination to Sarkeesian when he was unable to contact the coach personally one day after Sarkeesian was showing up to work unwell. Adam Shine shares his thoughts on the firing of USC coach Steve Sarkeesian. USC officially fired Steve Sarkeesian, and there was no choice after Sark showed up at practice on Sunday and no condition to coach. Putting Sark on leave wasn't good enough. Sark has an alcohol problem. He's reportedly checked into rehab, and I know Sark, and I hope he gets the treatment that he needs, and he really needs it. Based upon reports in the L.A. Times, this has been a problem for Sarkeesian for a while, dating back to his time at Washington. So now, USC, in my opinion, needs a new athletic director to make this ultra-important next hire for the new head coach at USC, one of the best jobs in all football, college of the pros. Pat Hayden needs to be held responsible for what happened. Sark clearly, clearly needed help after he mixed painkillers and alcohol at the Salute Detroit dinner. He clearly needed help way before that. Let me tell you how I interpreted that defensive press conference, okay? Hayden thought he had a team that can win the ultra-competitive Pac-12 and hoped that it would get better. My goodness, according to the aforementioned reports, players and coaches had beliefs that Sarkeesian was intoxicated at practices and games and not fit to coach. Folks, that's on the athletic director, okay? If the coaches know it, if the players know it, let me tell you something. The athletic director knows it. And I think he was hoping that because Sark is a great coach, when healthy, he was hoping it would just go away. He didn't help Sark. He didn't help his program. So now, if you're Kevin Sumlin, hypothetically, if you're, if you're Chip Kelly, for the record, I think Chip will, will stay in Philadelphia. If you're a big-time coaching candidate, do you take this job? Do you go work for Pat Hayden? At some point, he's got to get fired, right? I mean, he already fouled up the last hire he made with regards to USC basketball. I mean, when, when does the buck stop with him? Because he, he did a terrible job, a terrible job in August. He had an opportunity to really help Sarkeesian and his program in that order, and he failed. I don't think he should be the athletic director anymore at USC. I was never really sure why Steve Sarkeesian was the guy that USC went with, that Pat Hayden went with. And I've never quite been confident that Pat Hayden is the type of guy that you would want as your athletic director, even at the University of Southern 
California, which is where he was a star quarterback at. Sarkeesian was never that great a head football coach at Washington. Was he a great OC under Pete Carroll? Yes, but he was not that great a head football coach at the University of Washington. But that was where Pat Hayden went to get him when he fired Lane Kiffin three years ago. Now, Sarkeesian is out. Chip Kelly will probably stay at Philadelphia. Kevin Sumlin, he's not the type of guy that USC is going to build a football team around. USC is a prime job, as Shine said, but not for anybody right now with Pat Hayden as the athletic director. Interim coach Clay Helton is going to lead the Trojans 3-2 and two and 1-2 and two in the Pac-12 against number 14 Notre Dame on Saturday. And President Max Nikias issued a statement today in strong support of Hayden, who's under scrutiny for his handling of this Sarkeesian situation. Well, four-star high school running back George Hill of Hubbard, Ohio, has decommitted to the Ohio State Buckeyes. This seems to be the latest interesting event in Ohio State's effort to attract running backs in 2016. The first hit came late last week when Kareem Walker of Wayne, New Jersey, DePaul, the nation's top running back and an Ohio State commit, announced his intentions to officially visit Michigan. Walker's commitment to Ohio State is in question, so the Buckeyes invited Antonio Williams of New London, North Carolina, for an official visit for this Saturday's game against Penn State. Williams was committed to Wisconsin, but when he got the invite, he announced that he decided to reopen his recruitment. Now so has Hill, as he told Bill Green of Scout.com. Urban Meyer's obsessed with uh, speedy guys. I mean, I don't know if you... Uh what he told you about the way he likes the way you play, or what was it the most that you think that you got the early offer for, and and why do you think you're going to fit well into Ohio State's offense? Uh, speed and agility, and uh, me running out of the slot position sometime, and you know, just using me anywhere on the field is uh, punt return, kick return, just using speed. You know, how much do you think that your guys is you and LJ in the backfield makes it hard on the opponents because you have different styles? Uh. Oh no, LJ will run straight at you and then like, no, actually LJ got a couple moves. So uh, LJ will run straight at you sometime and then like, you'll think I'll do the same thing, but I'll end up, you know, making a move and make, yeah, so it's like, I don't know. But LJ do got moves though. Having made an early commitment, how much are you hearing from other coaches? Oh, still a lot. Still a lot. How hard is it to kind of balance, I mean, both of you are in the same position where you feel like you've made the right decision and you're excited about what's ahead, but how do you manage all the other stuff because it doesn't ever go away, including people like me. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Just uh, listen and try to see if they're telling me the right things and stuff like that and go back and look at Ohio State and see what they're doing. But Ohio State's been, you know, top priority right now. Well, obviously, Hill wants to at least look around and make sure that he has made the right decision. And although Hill wasn't projected as a true running back, maybe more of a wideout or an H-back like Braxton Miller, he does run in the same backfield as current Michigan State running back L.J. Scott, as you heard him say. Now, things have changed for Ohio State's running back situation. At one point, the Buckeyes had three of the nation's top five running backs committed, including Demario McCall of North Ridgeville. Ohio State continued their winning ways Saturday afternoon and will roll out all new black uniforms against Penn State on Saturday night, perhaps buoyed by 
the thought that it has a two-quarterback system that appears to be a workable plan moving forward. Cardell Jones threw for a career-high 291 yards last week in a 49-28 win over Maryland, while J.T. Barrett, the record-setting starter all regular season last year before suffering a broken ankle, entered when the team reached the red zone. Barrett wound up rushing for three touchdowns as the Buckeyes went 6-for-6 inside the red zone. Barrett was accountable for five of those TDs. So, Coach Urban Meyer was asked if that's the way it's going to be again this week and for the weeks to come. I think so, but I, you know, I'm not writing that in Sharpie yet. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. Uh, it was, I think everyone on our team, uh, to see him and his energy, and, and, uh, and he's a good player. And he gives us that extra. Cardell can certainly run, but this, when you have that threat, you saw it Saturday, and you have to defend that now. JT's got the personality and the work ethic and the respect amongst everybody in this room. And that's not saying Cardell doesn't, because Cardell's played his tail off now. So um, that's a good, good issue right now. So if Barrett is the red zone quarterback going forward for the Buckeyes, why isn't he good enough to be the starter over Jones? For JT to be the quarterback, he's got to beat Cardell out. There's no anointing. And does that make sense? And so I look at it, I look at that picture. For someone to go play defensive tackle here, they have to beat out Adolphus Washington. Now, that doesn't mean there's good ones in there that we're going to get in the game somehow. But for him to be the full-time guy, you've got to go beat out Josh Perry, Rayquan McMillan. And you have to beat him out. And so that has not happened. Uh, that doesn't mean it's been very close because it, it has been. And with that in mind, just how does Meyer deal with the fact Jones is good enough to be the quarterback between the 20s, but not in the red zone? I think Cardell continues to grow as a human being, as a, as a young man, as a person that I have a lot of respect for. Uh, maybe that respect wasn't there two years ago because he hadn't earned it. And I think that's the same. My thought, and the reason I say my, because I'm talking about the whole program, there's an incredible amount of respect for that kid now and the way he handled this, the way he's... I, I didn't see the quotes, but Jerry asked me about, can he go visit with you guys? And certainly, you know, he's, he's earned that right. And I imagine he would have said all the right things. Because I, I did. I think he's earned the right to have that conversation. Now we're going to do what's best for the team. But he was involved in that conversation. And uh, like I said, two years ago, he w- would not have been. People earn things around there. And he's really earned a lot of opportunity to let me know what, what his thoughts are. The Buckeyes are still sitting at number one in both major polls and riding the nation's longest winning streak at 19 consecutive games while preparing for Penn State Saturday. The Nittany Lions are 5-1. and one. They almost upset the Buckeyes' national championship season last year, taking the Bucks two overtimes before a couple of Barrett runs for TDs and a last play sack by Joey Bosa delivered the win. But when you look at Penn State now, this season... Meyer says their defense is impressive. Excellent defense. I think they're top ten. They, they, I haven't seen the final stats, but they had a hard time moving them last year. Very good defense. Offensively seems to be they're coming in their own. I have not spent a lot of time watched their offense. Um, started slow, but they're, I mean, they're really moving it. Um, so obviously, with a lot of respect for Penn State, their players, great, great players. The Buckeyes are tied with Penn State, Michigan, and Michigan State for the top spot in the Big Ten's Eastern Division. However, the Spartans and Bucks are unbeaten overall. So considering the fact that Ohio State hasn't played up to everyone's expectations so far, but hammered Maryland last week, just how well is Ohio State playing, according to the coach? I think a very good team that uh, gave up 130, 130 yards to a scrambling quarterback that 
you know, they came out, and, and I give uh, Mike Loxley a lot of credit. They came out and uh, went back to kind of his roots when he was at Illinois as the offense coordinator. Pure spread offense against us, Q runs. To, you know, we stopped the tailback. That's two weeks in a row that we, you know, basically eliminated the run game other than the quarterback run. And uh, they had some Q runs, but what really hurt us, that long one was just a scramble. We're in quarters defense, a defensive line got out of uh, position, and he took off and ran straight ahead. And... Uh, but I, I, I like, and I, I disregard the last touchdown against our defense. That was simply a ridiculous play on offense. That uh, the game should have been over. We already the twos and threes were already in the game, and, and so we gave up 21 points. One was a touchdown pass. And we were a little bit out of position. Not necessarily the player's fault. And then the other one was a, a long run. So I think defensively, I like where we're at. Offense, that was our best performance. You know, the penalties, red zone production. Uh, four penalties on offensive line in the first half. That was the only negative the whole, really, day. High-end execution in a pass game. And um, so I'm pleased with where we're at. And then there's Braxton Miller. It takes time to learn a new position, especially when you've been a star at another. But Braxton Miller seems to be coming into his own as the H-back and the receiver. And Meyer is just figuring out now how to integrate him more fully in the offense. He's got some big-time goals, and he should. He's very blessed, and uh, he wants to play at the next level. And so we take that very upon, very personal upon ourselves. We've had great success developing receivers for the next level. That doesn't necessarily equate to 160 catches a year or 110. Or, you know, sometimes that's just a product of the style of offense. Or we like to fully, like a Philly Brown, the reason he's playing isn't just because he can catch a pass. It's because he can get lined up, go block, and function in an offense, a balanced offense. And that's our job. I promise Braxton we do everything we possibly could to get him ready to go so he can maybe have a career in football and also help Ohio State. So that we, he's full, as of right now, he is fully integrated as a wide receiver at Ohio State. He was not early in the season. He didn't know what to do. His, the, the you know, good, you know, whatever it is, we're, we're 50 50. I think we're 230 rush, 230 pass, which is about we want to be a little bit more yards, but we want to be balanced. So, half the game, you're going to be getting your hands on someone blocking. And uh, he's done a much better job with that. The fact is that Miller has become comfortable enough to finally want the ball in his hands at crucial parts of the game, moving into the upper echelon of players at Ohio State. Every good quality player wants the football, and we don't discourage that. That goes back to my days in 1986 here when Chris Carter was playing receiver. He really wanted the ball. And what did Coach Bruce do? Gave him the ball. So, you know, I don't, the, the, we don't look at that as a negative. Now it becomes a social media uh, fiasco and a selfish where it's getting away of production. And, but when we go out and recruit skilled athletes, we want them that want the ball. And so when me and Braxton have conversations, it's about how do we get him the ball and make sure he's fundamentally sound to do it. Athletic Director Gene Smith said, a lot of discussion went into the decision to go with the black uniform Saturday night. Ohio State has worn an alternate uniform in at least one game a year starting in 2009, and that the first rendition submitted by Nike was sent back for changes, including brighter scarlet numbers and stripes in the pants. But the decision to wear these wasn't an easy one to make. The story goes as they came in last year, and uh, I think Gene, every year that we, I think every year we do a, I don't get real involved with the uniforms, and then, uh, you know, especially a place like Ohio State where, you know, you're knee deep in tradition, and so uh, Nike came to us and we, you know, what do you think of this? And our, my first reaction, no way, no chance, and I looked at it and said, whoa, and it looked pretty sharp, and then uh, Gene looked at it, 
Granted, I think there's some channels that uh, everybody has to run them through to make sure that they're on par with what's expected at Ohio State. And then you start thinking about the student body, the fans, you know, a unique experience, uh, recruiting players, and it's kind of a unique experience. Last year, Penn State racked up 420 yards of offense in a fairly balanced showing against the Hoosiers without their top backs, Akeel Lynch and Saquon Barkley, and center Angelo Mangiro was sidelined too. The Buckeyes Athletic Department is promoting the 8 p.m. game as Dark Night at the Shoe, and Ohio State will water that alternate uniform with not only black jerseys, long rumored to be in the works, but also black pants and, get this, black helmets. While Penn State fans have made Beaver Stadium an intimidating place when they have their annual whiteout, including last year's closer-than-expected OT victory over OSU. It remains to be seen what kind of effect will be seen at Ohio Stadium. Well, there's a lot of top 25 college football games going on this weekend, starting tonight, where number 18 UCLA at 4-1 and on the year will be at number 15 Stanford. Should be a very good one. That is going to be on ESPN tonight at 10.30. And the CBS College Football Analyst preview that upcoming matchup between UCLA and Stanford. BJ, what are you thinking? Well, you're right. Stanford has owned them. You're the last head coach at UCLA. Thank to you defeat. for bringing that up. I appreciate you're welcome. that. You're welcome. You only did it once. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, Thank you again. <laughs> I mean, but they've just out physical UCLA. That's the same thing that happened to them last week versus Arizona State. They stopped Paul Perkins in that running game. They put everything on Josh Rosen. I think the same thing is going to happen there on the farm with Stanford controlling the line of scrimmage, and they win this ball game. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they'd have had Miles Jack, how it would have gone. Right. I mean, they got punked by Arizona State. No other way to look at it. When I was at UCLA, Washington was the team we always struggled with. Right now, UCLA doesn't seem they can beat the pseudo-intellectuals up at Stanford, and I'm going to take Stanford. The last time these two teams played, UCLA was playing for a conference championship, right. at least the South Division crown, yep. and they played horribly. It was uh, they laid an egg in, in an epic manner, and Stanford regained their form. Kevin Hogan, I think, was 16 of 19, just around 200 yards. They looked phenomenal. Stanford, these last two games, has run for over 300 yards in each game. It's the first time since Harbaugh slash Shaw have came, came and made Stanford what they are today. They've been able to do that, 300 yards in both of them. That being said, the last time I thought UCLA was up against it, I picked against them, and they went on the road to Arizona and wiped out the Wildcats. I'm going with UCLA. They're going to find a way to get over this hump. I agree. It's a different animal, as you said, BJ. You look at this Stanford team with Christian McCaffrey, second in the FBS with all-purpose yards with 230 a game. He's largely responsible why they've been so physical up front. The issues with this Stanford team have been not being able to score in the red zone. They've largely fixed those issues. This offensive line is finally starting to come together. And I just don't know if UCLA is physical enough to be able to get it done. Stanford is following the same recipe they've done before. They're excellent on third down, converting 47% of their tries. They play small ball. They're having the sort of improvement throughout this season, a little bit like Ohio State did a year ago. I like Stanford in this ballgame to make it three straight. 
Well, on Friday night in the top 25 at 9 p.m. on ESPN, it will be number 24, Houston, unbeaten against number, although they're unranked, Tulane. They are 2-3 and three on the year. Also on Friday night on the CBS Sports Network at 9 o'clock, number 21, Boise State at 5-1 and one will take on Utah State at 3-2. and two. Now the Saturday games on ESPN. Louisville will be at number 11, Florida State. Florida State is also unbeaten. Also at noon, Three and two, West Virginia will be at number two, Baylor. They are unbeaten and 21 point favorites in that game. At 12 noon on ABC, Old Miss number 13. They will be playing at Memphis at five and zero. Oh. At 12 noon on ESPN three, Eastern Michigan will be at number 22 and unbeaten, Toledo. At 12 noon on ABC, also number 17 and unbeaten, Iowa will be at number 20, Northwestern. They lost last week to Michigan, and. The Wildcats are 5-1 and one on the year. Then comes the big game in the Big Ten at 3.30 on Saturday afternoon, a game televised on ESPN. Number 7, Michigan State, unbeaten at 6-0, and goes to number 12, Michigan, at 5-1 and on the year, and the Wolverines have shut out their last two opponents. Again, we go to the CBS Sports Inside College Football crew to analyze this matchup between Michigan State and Michigan. Aaron, you on the you on the train? It, it's interesting. Like when you look at this game, these are two teams that favor and thrive in the role of being the underdog, right? But now it happens to be Michigan State's. But when you look at these teams, they're really heading in two different directions. Michigan State has played outstanding, but they are banged up up front. They've been gutting it out with a lot of heart, finding ways to win. Their defense is good. They get after the passer. But last week they gave up a bunch of big plays down the field. In the end, I think Michigan is gelling at the right time. The fact that they get them at home, the fact that they're healthier than Michigan State is the difference in a very close ball game. You know what? I've done an Aaron Taylor on this game for the last three days, going back and forth. No, no, I get I get my picks right, BJ. We'll talk about that later oh. on the show. What's up? Ball's going to drop. Yeah, keep going. Don't let it drop. Like you got to look it in. Three points of pressure. What's up? I, I, I just talked about Michigan's defense. Northwestern last week, coming in undefeated, didn't even sniff the red zone. Michigan State, as you mentioned, they're banged up on that O-line. I just love what they're doing on the defensive side of the ball for Michigan. Now, you know, quarterbacks, I'd take Connor Cook all day over Rudock. Let's hope this game is not left in the hands of Rudock. He's 5-6, five, five touchdowns, six interceptions. Cook, 12 touchdowns, two interceptions. But I'm going to go with Michigan at home. Mm. Well, since they stopped turning the ball over, they still have a minus one turnover ratio. Yep. Michigan does undefeated, all those shutouts. Davion Smith running the ball really well on the offensive yep. side. The defense, you saw all those plays that Tulsa ran. That's why you have to be able to rotate all those guys right. and keep everybody fresh against teams that want to go fast pace and whatnot. I, I think Michigan wins this game, but doesn't win it easily. It's mm. down to the wire. As much as I think Michigan State relishes this role of underdog, and as much as I think they're going to play a great football game, you cannot deny the coaching job that's been done at, in Ann Arbor. It's, it's been fabulous. Three straight shutouts. It's hard to shut out air, let alone three opponents. It, it is a uh, remarkable, remarkable job. Jake Rudock, you were on him a little bit. By the way, 17 of 23 last week. He played an efficient game. They are the epitome of efficiency, and I think they'll continue to do it in front of a wild home crowd. Right. Let me correct myself and not shortchange Michigan. They have shut out three consecutive opponents while running themselves up to a 5-1 and one record. That game is at 3.30 on ESPN. Michigan State, 
against Michigan in the big house. Also at 3.30 on ABC, number 19 Oklahoma will be at Kansas State. At 3.30 on CBS Sports, it will be Alabama, number 10 in the country, taking on Texas A&M. The Aggies are unbeaten and at number 9 on the year. On ESPNU at 7 o'clock Saturday night, Boston College will be at number 5 at unbeaten Clemson. They're coming off their big victory over Notre Dame. Also at 7 o'clock on ESPN2 Saturday night, number 3 TCU at 6-0 will be in Ames taking on the Cyclones of Iowa State at 2-3 and three on the year. And then on ESPN at 7 o'clock Saturday night, a big SEC matchup. Number 8 and unbeaten Florida at 6-0 and oh, takes on number 6 and unbeaten LSU in the swamp in Louisiana. And again, the inside college football analyst from CBS Preview this upcoming matchup, and it all starts with the quarterback injury and the Tigers. Treon Harris's numbers this season, and on numbers alone, he compares rather favorably. Of course, not as many touchdowns or clutch moments like Greer had, especially against Tennessee and uh, delivering some of these wins here. But uh, again, a major blow. LSU, by the way, turns out it's the fourth time this year they're going to end up facing a backup quarterback of some kind uh, already. 27 to 16, Sportsline says, will, uh, will be the final on this one. Uh, Randy, who comes away with the victory? I have a hard time looking at that offense for LSU, specifically that offensive line, and Leonard Fournette with his over 1,000 yards, 12 touchdowns. That defense, guys like Neal up front as part of that front seven and what they've done, and not think that LSU has a huge advantage and they win this game. Florida season has been magical up until this point. Uh, Treon Harris, if there's a silver lining, recall that he failed a drug test a couple weeks ago, which allowed Will Greer to be the starter without having to look over his shoulder against Tennessee, and he had that great performance where he was 5-for-5 five five on fourth down and, and springboarded him into what we all thought was going to be a banner campaign. So Treon Harris doesn't have to look over his shoulder now. And, and as you just heard Jim McElwain say, he's got this skill set. LSU, though, has too much speed on defense for that to be a bother, and they certainly know who they are. There's only three teams in the country that have their tailback, have more carries than their quarterback has passing attempts. LSU's one of them. Mm -hmm. That's the recipe in Tiger Stadium as night arrives. <laughs> With the opportunity, I'm on LSU. Also I'm on known as dark in some parts. <laughs> I like LSU in this ballgame, guys. And when you look at the quarterback position, what allowed Florida to do so well was the fact that Will Grew was able to stretch the field vertically. For the first time in a long time, we had seen Florida have the ability to stretch the field. But it's LSU's defense that I think is going to take over in this game because Treon Harris is a running quarterback. When you look at these guys giving up less than 100 yards per game on the ground, only four rushing touchdowns. Randy, you mentioned Lewis Neal, but Davon Godshaw averaging two and a half sacks per game. This offensive line for Florida has played outstanding, but I think they get tested this week with a guy that can only run, that has problems stretching the ball vertically, and I think they get after the quarterback, and LSU wins. Well, they were tested a week ago there in Columbia, Missouri. They gave up five sacks, nine tackles for loss. So this offensive line looked nothing like they did versus Ole Miss. So you got the number one rush offense in LSU, number two rush defense in the conference in, in Florida. Something's got to give there. But I think it may come down to these quarterbacks. Treon Harris, hey, was a big fan of his, winning on the road, hostile territory, Tennessee, a year ago. He played in the, the, the win, Georgia, the, the Georgia ball game, where Florida won that one. But everyone's sleeping on Brandon Harris, man. He hit 64% of his passes a week ago. Brandon <laughs> Harris, I'm hitching my wagon to him. I'm going with LSU. 
Florida and LSU are on ESPN at 7 o'clock on Saturday night. And they're going to play under the lights in South Bend, where the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame, the number 14 team in the country, will entertain Southern California, as we talked about earlier. And the final game in the top 25 on Saturday night at 10 o'clock on ESPN, Arizona State will will be on the road as they will be in Utah to take on number four, the Utes, at 5-0 on the season. And moving to high school sports very quickly again, Texas high school sports officials have punished two football players and coaches involved in that intentional hit on a referee showing some leniency to a former assistant who denied allegations he ordered players to blindside the game umpire. Mac Breed told the University Interscholastic League that he said umpire Robert Watts needs to pay, but was surprised when the players hit Watts. Video of the September 4th incident created a national stir. The UIL suspended Breed, who previously resigned from the San Antonio J High School, for the rest of the school year and gave him two years probation. He could have been suspended for three years. Head coach Gary Gutierrez was given two years probation and the players were suspended from sports for the rest of the school year. Once again, there is football action on CBS tonight, the weekly Thursday night game where the Atlanta Falcons will be in New Orleans taking on the New Orleans Saints. That game is going to kick off at about 8.25 this evening, and that game, as I said, will be on CBS Sports. Adam Shine discusses, as there has been a lot of discussion lately over New Orleans coach Sean Payton's situation with the team after this year is this going to be his final year with the saints or not sean payton and the sean payton watch is going to be an omnipresent story his jab security is a major major deal look he's not going to get fired when you look at the regular season but i believe sean payton is going to leave i believe the saints want him off the team i think he wants to coach the giants I believe that the Miami Dolphins are also in play. I think he'd also like to coach the Colts, but I wonder aloud if he's the right fit for Andrew Luck. Safe money on where he's going to coach next year? Mike Tannenbaum, Bill Parcells have a relationship. Peyton and Parcells have a relationship. How about the Dolphins? Yeah, I could see him with the Dolphins next year. That is one place where I could see Sean Payton coaching next season. In this game, though, tonight, my pick, I'm going to go with the Atlanta Falcons. I think they're going to beat the Saints in New Orleans. Now let's take a look at the 1 o'clock games on Sunday afternoon. First of all, on Fox at 1 o'clock, the Washington Redskins are in New York to take on the Jets. I've got the Jets winning that game. Then also on Fox, the Arizona Cardinals go into Pittsburgh to take on the Pittsburgh Steelers, and Mike Tomlin. Who's going to be the quarterback? Is it going to be Michael Vick? They said Ben Roethlisberger is practicing this week. Well, CBS NFL analyst Pete Prisco and Pat Kerwin break down the keys for the Arizona Cardinals and the Pittsburgh game on Sunday. Pat, the Steelers, boy, they go on the road and they pull off a comeback and win on the last play on a run by Le'Veon Bell against San Diego. Pretty gutsy call by Mike Tomlin. Yeah, gutsy call. But, you know, they don't have Ben Roethlisberger right now, so I think he's really limited to who's your best player. 
And I think when they ask themselves that question, it's Le'Veon Bell. Boy, the guy reminds me of Marcus Allen. Uh, the way he runs, the way he catches the ball, that he's got a slashing style, but he has a powerful uh, move too. Pushed himself into the end zone. Look, I ask for those guys, if you're going to go out there with what they did, give him the ball 25 times, he lands up with 25 touches. That's the formula until our, the big guy gets back. And I will say this about Bell. On pace for 84 catches, Pete, uh, along with obviously 14, 1,500 yards rushing, this guy might be the best all-around back in the league right now. Yeah, and Marcus Allen comparison, very good one, because he doesn't remind me of Marcus Allen as well. I thought the call, yeah, I probably would have kicked the field goal and gone to overtime, but hey, he made the decision. you got to give him credit for it. It worked out for him. But if it didn't work out, you know he was going to get the heat. The How episode, many kickers have they had, Pete? Yeah, I know, but <laughs> go make the field goal. It's a, it was a, uh, that was too risky for me. The Arizona Cardinals playing great football offensively. They've scored 190 points in the first five games. That's in the top ten all time. That's impressive. And it starts with the passing game, as it always does with Bruce Arians. It's Carson Palmer throwing to Larry Fitzgerald and John Brown and that group of receivers, and they're putting up big numbers. You know Bruce Arians, he's not going to hold back. He's going to throw the football around, Pat. That's what he does. You know against the Steelers secondary, he's going to go in there and he's going to throw the football around. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And now he's got Palmer, who's healthy. Carson's 8-4 and four on the road as Bruce Arians' quarterback and averaging 33 points. So, yes, you're right. Let's go get him. Throw the ball up there and attack that secondary. Spending, uh, I will, they're spending a week on the East Coast. You like it? Yeah, I know I know the place at Greenbrier where they're staying. I was there this summer. Uh, with the Saints. Uh, the facility's outstanding, and it's just going to be a short hop uh, over to play the game in Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, Bruce Arians might get around a golf or two in, <laughs> but I love will. the facility. Love so, it. And, and our picks, we all like the Cardinals across the board, Pat, on the road. Wow. Well, it's uh, coming back from Monday night, Pittsburgh. You know, by the way, Pittsburgh, 13-9 and nine at home, last 22 times. So their home field isn't what it was, and there's no uh, Ben Roethlisberger, so I'm happy with Arizona. And keep this one in the hip pocket. Bruce Arians was fired by Mike Tomlin. If he gets a chance, don't be shocked if he doesn't try and run it up a little bit in this one. Oh, I doubt if he'll do that. But the Cardinals are playing at Pittsburgh. I'm going to take the Cardinals to win this game over the Roethlisberger-less Pittsburgh Steelers. Also at 1 o'clock on CBS, the next two games, Kansas City will be in Minnesota to take on the Vikings. Well... Jamal Charles is out for the year, so the Chiefs are going to be a little disconsolate about that. I'm going to take the Vikings to win this game in an upset special. Another upset special, the Bengals are coming off of a big win over San Diego, or I should say over Seattle, on Sunday. So the Bengals are going to Buffalo to take on the Bills. This game, I think, means more to the Bills than it does to the Bengals. I've got the Bills winning this game. I've got the Lions beating the Bears on Fox at 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon at home. And also at 1 o'clock on CBS, the Denver Broncos will be in Cleveland to take on the Browns. Yeah, the Browns beat the Ravens last week, I know. I'd love to see the Browns beat the Broncos, but I don't see it happening. Take the Broncos to win this one. Also at 1 o'clock on CBS on Sunday, the Houston Texans are in Jacksonville taking on the Jaguars. I've got the Texans winning this one. And the Miami Dolphins will play at Tennessee. I've got the Dolphins winning this game after they got rid of their coach, Joe Philbin, just two weeks ago. Now, the 4 o'clock games, the Carolina Panthers are in Seattle to take on the Seahawks. This game, almost a must-win for the Seahawks. I've got them winning that one at home. And the San Diego Chargers are going to be in on the road once again and in Lambeau Field to take on the Green Bay Packers. Once again, we go to Pete Prisco and Pat Kerwin 
to match up the keys for this one between the Chargers and the Packers. Pat, the Packers put up big numbers at home usually, but last week against the Rams, Aaron Rodgers threw two picks. You know, Pete, I'm glad he threw the picks. I was getting tired of that streak thing, and I think we were focusing, and not everyone else was focusing on too much. He's not going to lose games on picks, so get the one or two out of the way, which is what he did. And, you know, St. Louis is a terrific football team. Uh, they're not complete. That's why they're not going to be, in my mind, playoff contenders at the end. But they really have a lot going on. And, you know, they get they got a guy named Todd Gurley. But let me get to Aaron Rodgers here. 29-2 at home in his last 31 home game with 83 touchdown passes. My big alert about the Packers right now, and it's not enough for me to come off them as the team I like in this game, but I don't like when I see Aaron Rodgers being the lead rusher in the game. And that's what he was last week. Uh, that's dangerous to me. He does not need to do that. And I think team, every team's going to try to get him to do that. I'd rather see him running, take a shot at him, than throwing the ball down the field. This is a great matchup of quarterbacks because I love Phillip Rivers. I think Phillip Rivers is the most underappreciated player in the National Football League. He doesn't get his due. And he throws an interception on Monday night against the Steelers, and everybody blames Phillip Rivers. That wasn't on Phillip Rivers. That was on Floyd, the receiver. you got to cut that route off. you got to never let the defensive back get underneath you. But what happens? Rivers throws a pick, and everybody jumps all over him. This guy is a competitor. He's a hell of a football player, and he's going to have to come up big on the road if he's going to have any chance to beat the Green Bay Packers. I think this is going to be a game with a lot of points, a lot of balls in the air, passes everywhere. Yeah, I would say well over 600 yards of passing, uh, and these guys will have a shootout doing it. Great to see Gates back. He was terrific uh, in the game against the, um, the Steelers with 11 targets, 9 catches. So I'm with you. I think a big high-scoring game. Uh, I'd see over 50 points in this. I like Green Bay at home. I'll always like Green Bay at home, but 50 points beat. Yeah, we all, we, all, we all think it's going to be in the 50s. Yeah, you're going to see two quarterbacks in that game, Aaron Rodgers and Phillip Rivers, they're in the upper echelon of quarterbacks in the NFL. Who wins? Got to go with the Packers. You can't pick against the Packers when they are playing at Lambeau Field. At 425 on CBS on Sunday afternoon, the Ravens, coming off their shocking loss to the Browns last week, will be on the road as they go to San Francisco to play the 49ers. I've got the Ravens winning that game. Almost every game now for the Ravens is a must-win. And finally, the Sunday night game, on Sunday will be the New England Patriots and Indianapolis taking on the Colts in a rematch of the AFC Championship game from a year ago. I think the balls will be inflated for this one, but expect to see a lot of signs around the stadium talking about Deflategate. I'm going to take the Patriots to win this game. I think the Pats are playing this year with a chip on their shoulder. And the Monday night game on ESPN will be the Philadelphia Eagles hosting the New York Giants, this one should be a good one. A big NFC Eastern Division game, and I've got the Eagles winning that one as far as the NFL schedule is concerned for this weekend. Hey, a very sad note tonight in the NBA. A Nevada sheriff says a person who called... 911 to report that Lamar Odom was found unconscious at a brothel, said the former NBA star had been doing cocaine and had taken sexual performance enhancers. Nye County Sheriff Sharon Werley says an employee for the Love Ranch told 911 dispatchers that Odom was found unresponsive with blood coming from his nose and mouth. Steve Kerr took a leave of absence last week from the Golden State Warriors and 
to recover from his second back surgery of the offseason. The reason for the second surgery might creep you out. The Warriors head coach ruptured a disc in his back during the NBA Finals and had surgery. He was at practice on Sunday and told reporters that he suffered a spinal fluid leak caused by the first surgery, which led to the second surgery. Now that just doesn't sound good. Kerr said he's feeling better, but is not giving a timetable on when he will return. The Los Angeles Lakers have exercised their $3.26 million contract option for the 2016-17 season on forward Julius Randle, who has played just one regular season game for the Lakers. He broke his leg last year and missed the entire season. And the Minnesota Lynx won the third consecutive championship in a row in a tense WNBA Finals against the Indiana Fever in Game 5 on Wednesday night. That's going to do it for tonight, but finally, Cardell Jones has to be crying in his milk. Ronda Rousey is no longer a single lady. UFC fighter Travis Brown dished on his and Rousey's relationship on Monday, and she confirmed that the two are an item. Clearly, the 28-year-old Rousey and the 33-year-old Brown have a lot in common because they both are in the MMA, and they both compete as a heavyweight, and they have been training out of the same gym for over a year. Hey, want to wish birthday and anniversary wishes to the owner and producer of this show, Greg Mitchell. It is his birthday. We won't tell you that he's turning 30, and it's his anniversary. So happy birthday to Hooli and Greg on their anniversary, and happy birthday wishes go out to Greg Mitchell our founder of the UltimateSportsTalk.com website and also the producer of this show. Don't forget, tomorrow night we have got high school football for you on UltimateSportsTalk.com. Pat Mitchell and I will be bringing you the Waynedale Golden Bears hosting the Dalton Bulldogs. Waynedale has lost three of their last four and two in a row, but they are still number seven in the computer rankings as far as making the playoffs in Division 5 is concerned, so every win is paramount for the Bears. We'll be on the air with Golden Bear Rewind at 6 o'clock tomorrow night, and then at 6.30 is the PNC Bank pregame show, and finally, our kickoff will be at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Dalton at Waynedale in a big rivalry. This is the 60th meeting between these two ball clubs. Dalton has won 30 and Waynedale 29. Last year was an overtime victory for the Bulldogs as they won on their home field 13-7 to in overtime. And the Bears will try to even up this series tomorrow night at 7 o'clock on UltimateSportsTalk.com. And I'll be back with another Ultimate Sports Talk show next Thursday night at 7 o'clock here on Ultimate Sports Talk. And by the way, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show is now on hiatus. Mark Donahue and I will be back next year, March 7th, Monday night at 9 o'clock. That's March 7th, 2016, on Monday night as we begin our sixth year of the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But as I said, that's going to do it for us tonight. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show. But most of all, our thanks go out to you for listening. Until next Thursday night at 7 o'clock, I'm Dave Mitchell, everyone. Have a good week. Have a good weekend. Good night.